The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Great. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Claire Poynton-Smith, one of the conveners of the Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series, along with our own Orla Donnelly and Eric Schwartz. And I'd like to welcome you all to this evening's talk in the series. Um, as you know, we pride ourselves on being an important and supportive space for postgrad students, faculty and guests to present and discuss their current research. Um, this term, the series is being hosted by Trinity Long Room Hub, and you can tweet as we go along. You've got the tags there on the screen, but it's TLR Hub and Seminars TCD 2021. You can also tag TCD English. Today, we're delighted to have a presentation by Dr. Alex Alonso, who will be speaking to us on the topic of Seamus Heaney and the radio imaginary. Before we begin, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. Dr. Alonso will speak for around 40 minutes and then there'll be time for questions after. If you have a question, please type it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. So there is a button for the chat as well as the Q&A, and we'd like you to use the Q&A for questions. The chat can just be for general comments. We will reply to as many questions as we can in the time allotted, which will be the latter 20 minutes. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our speaker tonight. Alex Alonso is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College Dublin, where he's working on a project about Irish poets and the radio. His first book, Transatlantic Formations, Paul Mundoon in America, was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Currently, he is co-curating an online exhibition about the life and work of Derek Mahon, Mahon, I'll have said that wrong, forgive me, piecing together the poet, which will launch later this week in line with the commemorative conference on the poet that's taking place here at Trinity. So brilliant, Alex, if we stop sharing that screen, then you can share your slides and you can take it away. Okay, can we see that? Perfect. So, um, great, thank you so much for that introduction. And yeah, I'd like to thank the whole team here and uh, at the Long Room Hub for the invitation to share this talk today. And thanks also to everyone for attending. In 2009, as part of a programme of events in honour of Seamus Heaney's 70th birthday, RTE released the 15 CD box set, Seamus Heaney, Collected Poems. It contained all 11 major volumes to that point, from Death of a Naturalist in 96, sorry, 66, to Death to District and Circle in 2006, read by the poet himself. On the day, the full 12 hour recording was broadcast in its entirety on RTE radio followed by a live programme televised from the Royal Hospital Kilmainham, Dublin, and a feature-length documentary, Seamus Heaney, Out of the Marvellous. These tributes were not only a measure of Heaney's standing, um, Heaney's standing and his work's extraordinary connection with the public, but the culmination of a long and mutually rewarding relationship with Irish broadcasting. It's worth noting that until the arrival of the CD box set, the complete works of Heaney's poetry had never been collected in one place. The whole thing took more than a year to record, Heaney working closely with the RTE producer and sound engineers as he went poem by poem, collection by collection, reading and recording for hours at a time. It says much that Heaney, still recovering from a severe stroke in 2006, committed happily to such an arduous undertaking. 
the production is a clear indication of how strongly he felt about the significance of sound media and the spoken word to his art, and reflects a desire to leave behind what stands as, in effect, an audio archive of his work. This notion of the audio archive, of the spoken as well as the written trace, seems an appropriate entry point to Heaney's many-sided engagements with the radio medium, in the poetry, in his critical prose and interviews, and of course, as a seasoned broadcaster himself. In his lectures and interviews, Heaney would regularly appraise his poetic influences in auditory terms. Patrick Kavanagh, he says, walked into my ear like an old style farmer walking into a field. His admiration for T.S. Eliot stems from the physicality of his ear, he says, and the way his ex intelligence exercises itself in the activity of listening. Robert Frost first is celebrated for its posture in the mouth and in the ear. Ted Hughes is favored over Philip Larkin for possessing a bigger transmitter and even the beginning of the last gospel at mass sounds to him, quote, like the first note of God's tuning fork. Discussing the composition of his formative early poem, Digging, Heaney claimed he was, quote, responding to an entirely phonetic, phonetic prompt, a kind of sonic chain dictated by the inner ear. It seems clear enough that Heaney holds with Robert Frost that the ear is the only true writer and the only true reader. As he explained it to Dennis O'Driscoll in Stepping Stones, from his standpoint as a poet, receptivity to the sounds words make is, quote, the key to getting started. Years before, in his 1974 lecture, Feeling into Words, Heaney traced this receptivity back to a set of remembered voices that left a deep impression in childhood, bedding the ear, he says, with a kind of linguistic hardcore. Maybe it began very early when my mother used to recite lists of affixes and suffixes and Latin roots with their English meanings. Maybe it began with the exotic listing on the wireless dial, Stuttgart, Leipzig, Oslo, Hilversum. Maybe it was stirred by the beautiful sprung rhythms of the old BBC weather forecast, Dogor, Rackel, Rockall, Malin, Shetland, Faroes, Finisterre, or with the gorgeous and inane phraseology of the catechism or with the litany of the Blessed Virgin that was part of the enforced poetry of our household. Radio is located here among the foundations of Heaney's poetic imagination, wedged between Latin learning by rote and the Catholic rites that were central to his upbringing. In the intimate accounts of radio listening he gives decades later in his Nobel lecture, where we find the same list of foreign stations named, and in his interviews with O'Driscoll, Heaney shows us that these first memories of the family radio remained with him, uncannily well-preserved throughout his life. As we shall see, they're a wellhead that he returned to at pivotal junctures in his career. For now, though, it's worth saying that these early reflections on the wireless dial are a small intimation of the significance of stations as points of arrival and departure, not only in the modern senses of broadcasting or transportation, but in the Catholic Stations of the Cross, invoked in Heaney's first and only volume of po prose poems, Stations, and later in the stepping stones traversed in the Dantean pilgrimage of Station Island. Those exotic listings on the wireless dial are, in their own way, stepping stones towards the journeys and stations that would become presiding motifs in Heaney's later work, roaming at will the stations of the world in electric light, traversing the underground stations of District and Circle, or taking the comparably Virgilian passage of Route 110 in his final collection, Human Chain. 
Together with the familiar litanies of the BBC's shipping and weather forecasts, these wireless listings produce a memorable sequence of place names, which seems to have been its own kind of enforced poetry in, the, in Heaney's childhood. The radio served to make the young poet aware, if only by name, of a larger world beyond the farm in Mossbourne, a reminder of the remoteness of his first place, perhaps, but also a means of reaching other places and a model of imaginative departure. Before exploring this idea any further, we might pause to think more about the role of sound in Heaney's poetic and scholarly work and the extent to which the voice shapes the verse. It's commonly the case, in, it's commonly the case that for all its complexity and disturbance, Heaney's critical and creative writing is uncommonly easy on the ear. His early poems in particular are steeped not only in a language of sensory impressions, but in sensory impressions of the language, as if the acoustic material of words and letters were as much a part of his first poetic ground as the landscape itself. That gift for verbal abstraction, little riffs on the sound and shapes of words, is one that continued to evolve throughout his career. Heaney's sense of phonetic purchase, honed in his first two volumes, is deepened and more systematically set out in Wintering Out and North, where the enunciation of words and names, especially place names, is at once the medium and the matter of his most characteristic poems. Such is the case in the soft gradient of consonant vowel meadow in Anna Horish, the spools of his vowels and winding through soft names like rouge in the wool trade, the soft blastings of tomb, tomb in tomb. The BBC radio presenter John Toll has described Heaney's voice as, quote, a soft South Derry burr, and softness is invoked in each of the examples given here against the incongruously explosive blastings of the last in tomb, Blasting being a term defined in Stephen Oswald Pearson's Dictionary of Wireless Technical Terms since 1926 as the distortion which takes place in loudspeaker or telephone signals on extra loud notes. These are sonically rich place-bound poems that are meant to be spoken aloud, and it follows that Heaney was fond of reading them on air. Coincidentally or not, these poems were all written at a time when his freelance radio commitments had become an increasingly regular fixture. I tend to read the same poems nearly all the time, poems that touch, reach, and hold an audience, he told, he told John Haffenden in Viewpoints, adding that a poetry reading is a public ritual, a performance, and the poems should be suitable for speaking. While the exaggerated stress these poems place on the materiality of words was gradually relaxed, though, no, though never lost in the collections that followed, a shape note language of place and landscape, landscape continues to preside, more self-consciously than before perhaps, in the glamour sonnets of fieldwork, vowels ploughed into other, and in the later alphabets of the hall anthem, where written symbols are translated into or out of the trappings of the poet's rural home, the, the letter Y of fork stick, um, the teacher's stick, uh, sorry, the teacher's tick, a little leaning hoe. If these letters and lexical markings are figuratively forked, suggesting two things at once, the fork and the hoe appearing in the classroom setting also points to the conjunction of culture and agriculture, the pen and the spade that structures Heaney's poetic vision from the beginning. A richly combined harvesting of land and language is evident here in the first two decades of Heaney's career, perhaps no, nowhere more so than in the ploughed vowels of the Glanmore sonnets. The sequence was an homage to the poet's new home in Wicklow, written during a period when Heaney, much in need of a steady income, was engaged in a good deal of freelance work for the BBC and RTE. 
the third the third sonnet makes explicit the comparison between Seamus and Marie Heaney's bucolic re retreat to, to Glanmore and Dorothy and William in Grasmere, whose cottage Heaney had visited in 1974 to present the BBC television programme William Wordsworth lived here. While Mary in the poem objects to being cast as the Dorothy to, to Heaney's William, Glanmore Cottage became an undeniably Wordsworthian setting for Heaney as both a landscape and a mindscape to echo the terms of that BBC production. In the programme, Heaney speaks of Wordsworth as, quote, a man who traced the birth of his poetic vocation to the noise of river water murmuring in his infant ear. And he lingers tellingly on Wordsworth's aud auditory imagination and, quote, the sense of hidden flowing water as the element which has tutored his poetic voice. Looking back, Heaney explained to Dennis O'Driscoll that his preparation for William Wordsworth lived here left a lasting impression with the Glanmore sonnets having announced themselves, he says, just after I'd gone to do that BBC programme on Dove Cottage. Wordsworth, alongside Yeats, then became the focus of his important 1978 lecture, Makings of a Music, a title he considered using for the volume of prose that became Preoccupations. Asked by O'Driscoll O'Driscoll whether this lack of a written trace from all his radio and television work had ever troubled him, Heaney's glib retort that the check was the most important written trace does not tell the whole story. The Glanmore sonnets are just one illustration that the work he did for the BBC and RTE left a significant imprint on his poetic output during this time and afterwards, perhaps in ways that Heaney himself did not always recognise. Towards the end of the Glanmore sequence, uh, the poet depicts himself listening late at night through the bays of his wireless set. Swayed by the same meteorological summons and sprung rhythms of the, of the shipping forecast that he first recalled in feeling into words. And I'll allow Heaney to, to read this himself. Dogger, Rockall, Malin, Irish Sea. Green swift upsurges, North Atlantic flux conjured by that strong gale warning voice collapse into a sibilant penumbra. Midnight and closed down. Sirens of the tundra, of eel road, seal road, keel road, whale road, raise their wind-compounded keen behind the bays and drive the trawlers to the lee of Wicklow. L'Etoile, Le Guillemo, La Belle Hélène nursed their bright names this morning in the bay that toiled like mortar. It was marvellous and actual. I said out loud, a haven, the word deepening, clearing, like the sky elsewhere on Minch's, Cromarty, the Pharaohs. Rhyming flux with voice and later marvellous, the poem luxuriates in the act of verbal articulation. It relishes the naming of names, playing up the voice's likeness to the wind and its faintly supernatural siren-like hold over the ear. Such as its force, the gale-warning voice not only drives the trawlers to safe harbour, but is presented as if it's conjured the very gale it forecasts. In this way, Heaney's poem conspires in the vocal power it conveys, wants to loosen the distinction between the radio voice as benign warner, impassive reporter, and perhaps devilish harbinger of the storm. It's worth recalling here Heaney's fearful early memories of bog pools, recorded in his 1978 BBC radio broadcast, Omphalos, 
in which he identifies a predatory bog creature of childhood lore, the Mosscheeper, as he calls it, with the soft, malicious sound of its name, a siren of collapsing sibilance coaxing you towards the bog pools. The sinister lore of these bog pools and the fantastically named creature associated with them is not far removed from the poem's captivation with the sea and its hypnotic litany of names, with the siren calls and collapsing sibilance of both broadcasts, one aired on the BBC, the other heard only in the poem, invoking in him a comparable mix of fascination and fear. By the end of the sonnet, it's the poet's words, a haven spoken aloud like a charm or a prayer that appears to banish the storm clouds, as if Heaney's speaker were arrogating to himself the same imagined authority as the radio speaker to conjure or collapse the elements by voice alone. And in a sense, through this verbal tour of the storm's rise and fall, that marvellous vocal authority is precisely what the poem asks to be granted, gesturing as it does to a poetry of invocation and Heaney's wish to write poems that are, in a revealing phrase he uses elsewhere, a retuning of the world itself. In 1989, Heaney was once again contemplating the apparent omnipotence of the radio voice, though this time in more polemical terms, in his essay, The Regional Forecast. There he relates the experience of local households listening to the BBC weather forecast, which was issued from abroad, quote, in a tone so authoritative it verged upon the tyrannical, making official what we already knew by instinct. The language and accent of this radio voice are not only indicators of a separate cultural identity, harking to an elsewhere, as he puts it, but a draconian means of authorising one's perspective on the outside world. Significantly, the essay goes on to suggest the regular contradictions between the sky over the listeners' heads and the forecaster's ungainsayable determination about the coming weather, quote, began to interpose between ourselves and the evidence of our senses, giving a version of the meteorological reality which weakened the sureness of our grip on our own experience. The analogy with Britain's cultural and linguistic grip on Northern Ireland is clear as is Heaney's implication that resisting the, quote, infallible dogma of the forecast may be construed as a small but significant step towards regional self-determination. But the presiding idea in the regional forecast that the radio forecaster would give the weather, as he recalls the Orwellian phrase, offers some indication of the deep authority Heaney identifies with BBC English, not least in its sinister capacity to interpose between what the locals see and what they're told to see. In the seventh Glamour sonnet, the enchantment of the shipping forecast with its sibilant spell of place names is relished rather than resisted, more seductive than suspect. But both the poem and this essay turn on what is essentially the same commanding influence or even auditory imperialism of the radio voice at work. These texts are variations on a concern with vocal and poetic authority that extends through much of Heaney's prose and poetry. It sets out this concern most, he sets out this concern most comprehensively in Sounding Orden in 1987, an essay which opens with reference to the sway gained over the deep ear and through that over other parts of our mind and nature. These words precede a discussion of poetic sense and poetic sound and the relative merits we place on each with the poet's voice bridging the two. When Heaney identifies this vocal sensibility in other poets besides Auden, as he did with Geoffrey Hill a decade late, earlier, sorry, 
He likens it to quote Stephen Dedalus's hyperconsciousness of words as physical sensations, as sounds to be plumbed, as weights on the tongue. In the Stereophonic Sirens chapter of Ulysses, Joyce refers to the ear eye that see hears, and Heaney seems equally swayed by the synesthetic Joycean dimensions of what can be felt and seen, as well as simply heard through the deep ear. After sounding Auden, the themes are expressed again with great refinement and complexity in a sofa in the 40s, an exemplary poem about the experience of radio listening in which, quote, the sway of language and its furtherings swept and swayed in us like nets in water. Here, the sway of the radio transmission and its purchase on the deep ear captures simultaneously a forceful coercion holding sway and a gentle fluctuation swaying between possibilities or to music. Once again, Heaney makes plain his basic distrust of the BBC radio voice in a sofa in the 40s, where the absolute speaker who announces, here is the news, in all caps, is unambiguously an agent of empire, a figurehead for the domineering otherness of the BBC English voice, whose dispatch is so far removed from the daily rhythms and idioms of the child's dairy farmhouse as to seem like a tyrannical incursion. As the radio takes with one hand, however, it also gives with the other, delighting the Heaney children with programmes like The Riders of the Range that open new worlds of adventure and imaginative play. Conflicted as he was about the BBC, Heaney was transfixed, transfixed by the radio from an early age. Asked about his childhood home and stepping stones, he recalls the wireless with a level of detail that suggests an indelible attachment to a memory that's worked its way into his personal mythology. Dogger. Oh, sorry. Our set was a costal and re relatively small in comparison with some of the others in the district. Beige fabric covering the speaker, a white dial with black and red lettering showing the stations, and a single ominous dial hand, delicately fitted, sharp and sweeping. There was a thrill of omnipotence almost when you twirled the knob and watched the hand, no watched the hand roam over Dusseldorf and Warsaw and Stockholm and Stuttgart and the rest. I was entranced by it. What first struck the poet as a boy is wonderfully reframed here as childhood epiphany. His Nobel lecture crediting poetry once again places the wireless at the centre of a primal scene, closely matching the picture presented in his over in the 40s. Here the radio is a fixed point in the den life of the family farmstead, where the, where the air around us was alive and signalling. In the Nobel lecture, as in the seventh Glanmore sonnet, the radio transmission seems to be simultaneously at odds with the prevailing climate and at one with it. When a wind stirred in the beaches, it also stirred an aerial wire attached to the topmost branch of the chestnut tree. Down it swept, in through a hole bored in the corner of the kitchen window, right into the innards of our wireless set, where a little pandemonium of burbles and squeaks would suddenly give way to the voice of a BBC newsreader speaking out of the unexpected like a deus ex machina. The innards of the wireless set is fascinatingly material, as is, as is Heaney's whole account of the radio's first impressions on the growing boy. Hints of arousal charge the language across the two passages, not only in the twirled knob and single ominous dial hand, but in Heaney's vestigial susceptibility to the radio's seductive entry into the room is suddenly giving way to a thrill of sweeping, roaming, stirring and boring that plays on erotics of diction and motion as much as anything strictly erogenous. 
It must be significant that Heaney's obsession with the sound of words, his delight in the verbal music of gutturals and sibilants, comes so freely to the fore whenever he's remembering the radio, and indeed that the radio itself came to mind primarily and so primarily when preparing this career-capping speech. His Nobel lecture credits radio as having launched him on, quote, a journey into the wideness of language. And the excursion comes full circle here as Heaney turns his attention and the full weight of his descriptive gifts to the wireless set at its source. The schoolroom is the site of one of Heaney's earliest and most abiding radio memories. In the living air, he remembers a BBC schools broadcast played to the class that included Thomas Hardy's poem, Weathers. The poem was read by an actor from the BBC's repertory company in what he calls a big commanding standard English voice that, stopped, that shook the speakers in the classroom and seemed to possess a force that equaled the natural forces at work in Hardy's landscape. In a separate radio programme, he, he recounted the same schoolroom scene. I also remember school's broadcast, hearing, hearing a BBC broadcast. That was a big event anyway, because it was like a free class, you know, you were listening to the radio. This is the weather the shepherd shuns, and so do I. When beaches drip in browns and duns and thresh and ply. The, the poem that was spoken was Thomas Hardy's Weathers. And it was spoken by that rather older, commanding BBC elocution style of voice. This is the weather the cuckoo loves. So do I. But, but actually, it was glittering for me. That's taken from uh, John Cole's Radio Heaney. Although he scorns the commanding BBC elocution style of voice, there's something in the poem and the medium through which it's delivered that left a deep impression on him. Heaney is the great modern poet of returns, and the voice of the radio is not only one of his earliest points of reference, but seems in itself to compel his instincts to go back to first things. Heaney's own entry to the BBC Northern Ireland School Service came with Explorations, a weekly series of 10 radio programmes written and presented by Heaney and produced by his friend David Hammond. When the programmes began in January 1974, they were accompanied in the schoolroom by pupils' pamphlets and a booklet of teachers' notes. I also... Sorry. Um, both compiled by Heaney, in which he explains the primary aim of the series is to, quote, stir the imagination in the conviction that ch children's sensibilities can be open to the experience of language as literature. The operative word there is stir, a favourite verb of Heaney's that appears in his work on memory many occasions, notably, as we've seen, in the stirred aerial wire that feeds into the radio sets and crediting poetry, and in the childhood fascination with language stirred by the beautiful sprung rhythms of the weather forecast and feeling into words. Before these two landmark lectures, the word as it's used in the teacher's notes carries an echo of its first published appearance in The Diviner, one of Heaney's seminal poetic portraits of the artist, in which the bystanders try the diviner's rod for themselves, but cannot sense the, but cannot sense the spring water broadcasting its secret stations. Quote, it lay dead in their grasp till nonchalantly he gripped expectant wrist, the hazel stirred. The radiophonic channeling of the signal from diviner from bystander offers an instructive parallel with the pedagogy of explorations. The programs are designed as a personal hands-on introduction to, to, to poetic activity, 
an inducement to rouse something dormant, aiming to open the experience of language as literature rather than merely service and examination syllabus, both quotations. It's on this word opening, another signature verb, that Rosie Levan's invaluable reading of explorations turns when she notes that the radio is an open medium and openness in, radio, in Heaney's poetry is always suggestive of promise and potential, even when attended by foreboding or uncertainty. To open the text is self-evidently to release its potential, and there's a forceful connection to be made between the potential of the literary and the potential of the child who, who encounters it. The series sought then to, uh, my fingers, the series sought to motivate children, school children to write, as well as to better appreciate what they read. And like the diviner himself, Heaney in exploration seems to revel in the role of stirring expectant risks into action, as well as bringing the broadcast material to life. In the series opener, Words Working, Heaney calls attention to the mystical properties of language and by implication, the quickening effects of the radio medium. Predictably, he lingers on the incantatory effect of names. They are spells to call up a vision, he says, and suggests that and suggests that saying the names of places you like can be a kind of poetry. From the names of the stations on the wireless dial to the places invoked by the shipping forecast, the significance Heaney vests in the music of names and places often comes back to childhood memories of radio. And it's fitting that three years before his lecture, The Sense of Place in 1977, Heaney's most sustained crit critical pronouncements on the poetics of place names appear here in a radio broadcast for school children. Highly conscious of the medium in which he's working, the poet's earnest appeals to the auditory imagination of his younger audience are foregrounded in explorations throughout. Later in the programme, he draws a more pointed analogy between verbal creativity and the sound medium of radio, saying, words come to our imagination the way sounds come, to the air, come in the air. They set up waves. They work the way music works. Levan calls explorations a personalized version of the school anthology whose editorial principles can be readily related to the preoccupations of the literary criticism, which Heaney was increasingly was writing increasingly at this point. While the programs grapple with a series of critical ideas the poet will return to in preoccupations, they're also an outlet for contemporary developments in Heaney's poetry. The historical voice in North that instructs him to lie down in the word hoard is preempted in the first programme, which begins with the Anglo-Saxon poets describing their work on a poem as opening the word hoard. In another programme, he gives a glimpse of Sweeney Astray some nine years ahead of its eventual publication in 1983, providing 11 quatrains he calls Sweeney's praise of the trees. In the medieval Irish romance on which Sweeney Astray is based, Sweeney is an Ulster king cursed into madness by the cleric Ronan and fated to, work the, sorry, fated to wander the island in bird form. Sweeney's praise of the, of the trees um, records a moment halfway through the tale when Sweeney, having been tripped into returning to civilization, escapes back into the wilderness that's become his home. In his interviews with O'Driscoll, Heaney would later explain how he began work on his version of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Sweeney in 1973, soon after landing in County Wicklow, where he was moved in part by a freelancer's forward planning, 
as well as a book publication, he said, I thought there could also be a radio dramatization and was encouraged in that direction when I spoke to the actor, Jackie McGowan. McGowan was close to Samuel Beckett, having built a career around his work. And a few months after explorations in a 1974 BBC radio broadcast entitled The Bird King, it's interesting to hear Heaney speaking of Sweeney as a figure who, in his alienation and paranoia, might not be so far out of place in a novel by Samuel Beckett. Recalling these half-laid plans of a McGowan-inspired radio drama, Sweeney's premature appearance in Explorations was presumably Heaney's way of putting part of his first draft to its paces, testing its radio worthiness and adaptability. Later that year, he presented the second programme just mentioned, Bird King, for Paul Muldoon's BBC Northern Ireland radio series, Irish Poetry. There he read and discussed the Sweeney work more extensively, quoting large, large sections of his translation. One of these sections was, again, Sweeney's Prose of the Trees, revised slightly from the version he read in Explorations, where in the final stanza, which I've highlighted in the slide, an oak rod always swinging its thong is changed to the dangerous swing of an oak rod always testing its thong. As the oak branch tests its menacing lash, Heaney himself seems to be weighing the impact of these lines, trying out new variations on the ear. If the radio broadcast doubled as a testing ground for this work in progress, Heaney was evidently unsatisfied with the result. Soon afterwards, he left his draft pages in the drawer, as he told Dennis O'Driscoll, where they would sit for years awaiting revision. Radio presented Heaney with the opportunity to give Sweeney his first public outing. And four years later, it was another radio broadcast that, according to Stephen Regan, prompted, Hegan, sorry, prompted Heaney to revisit his drafts. In this 1978 RT radio programme on early Irish nature poetry, which was later republished in Preoccupations under the title The God in the Tree, it ends with the poet's latest version of Sweeney's Praise, in the tree, praise of the Trees, there Heaney fiddles again with those lines about the oak tree, removing the dangerous swing, but keeping the ominous image of the branch testing its thong. The rest of the Sweeney verses used in the broadcast are continuous with those later printed in the final work, but the troublesome fine lines fine-tuned across three radio programmes are, predictably enough, Ronnie alters once more before publication, appearing as they do in section 40 of the Sweeney Astray as the to and fro and to and fro of an oak rod. These lines differ again from the swishing to and fro that Regan cites from another of Heaney's notebooks, suggesting that even this later broadcast was a test case in a very long chain of revisions. In any case, the earlier implication of the oak branch as thong, an instrument of punishment and penance, is gone from the published work, its dangerous swing exchanged for the gentler iambic to and fro and to and fro, that emphasizes Sweeney's praise of the trees over his fear of the lash. Heaney's attachment to the passage is evident from the pains he took to get it right. And once he did, it was one of the few verse, verses from Sweeney Astray that he elected to republish in open ground. During this period, Sweeney Astray was not the only unpublished work Heaney was tinkering with on air. Shortly after working with Muldoon on The Bird King, he read an early version of Singing School for, BBC, for the BBC Radio 3 programme Causeway. Published the following year in North, 
Singing score is an intensely autobiographical sequence that concludes with the volume that, that concludes the volume of poetry received in all quarters as a powerful commentary on the Northern Troubles. The broadcast version of the sequence begins, as in the printed text, with an epigraph from Wordsworth's The Prelude. However, the second epigraph from Yeats's autobiographies and the entire third poem, The Orange Drums, Tyrone, 1966, are both absent from the radio script. These differences might suggest that at the time of broadcast, he need not yet settled on the final arrangement of the poem, but it seems equally possible that the unused material was just to be a little too provocative for the BBC's liking. The removed Yeats epigraph mentions rifles handed out to orange men and dwells on the thought that I would like to die fighting the Fenians. While the orange drums poem presents the drums of the Protestant marchers like giant tumours with skins plastered with blood. What's more, parts of the opening poem, The Ministry of Fear, are printed and then crossed out in the radio transcript. A set of deletions which may have been made in order to keep the programme to time, but which also happened to remove Heaney's lines about the figures at the military checkpoint, who, suspicious of his Irish sounding name, once read my letters at a roadblock and shone their torches on your hieroglyphics. It's not clear from the transcript who made these allusions or why, but in the event, the version of Singing School broadcast on the programme has withdrawn a good deal of its sectarian sting. Although Heaney on the subject of poetry readings told John Haffenden that he does not try out new work on live audiences, in a radio setting, he often reads unpublished material and at times revised that work before publication. With this in mind, Heaney's radio programmes and their scripts offer an unusually intimate point of entry to his editorial process, allowing us to witness the poems being calibrated for a public audience between its first phase of completion and its final phase in print. How the poet handles this transition between broadcast and publication is instructive. In a BBC Northern Ireland arts broadcast entitled In Their Element, produced by Muldoon in 1977, Heaney and Derek Mahon introduced sections of selections of their work including a mix of published texts and poems in progress. After two poems from Death of a Naturalist, Heaney read The Otter, published two years later in Fieldwork. Like the skunk that neighbours it in the collection, The Otter is a love poem framed by an animal sighting, in which the otter's movements through water interweave with an erotic memory of his wife swimming. The poem recorded for the broadcast comes with an additional last stanza, which I've quoted second here, which was later dropped from the published volume. And suddenly you're out, back again, intent as ever, heavy and frisky in your freshened pelt, printing the stones. Riverbank marigolds, seepage through alder roots. Back there on the pattering mudslick, I would pounce, otter, and revel. Heaney was right to forego these final four lines, I think, which work a satisfying pattern on the ear, but end up jerking the speaker from his position of languorous recollection to one of predatory action. The finished poem is much better served by not finishing the, the fantasy, instead leaving the wet, wet, sorry, leaving instead the wet feet printing the stones as a final suggestive ellipsis. These two versions of the text in broadcast and print display Heaney's fine-tuned sense of what to keep and what to leave on the cutting room floor, illustrated in a poem which riffs on the metamorphic cutting and stitching of memories, 
and as one mode of reflection gives way to another. In the final part of this talk, I want to return to where we began with Heaney's audio recordings. Old recordings are studied through the later verse, particularly electric light. Along with some volumes of McDermid, Bishop, Yates and Hardy in his poem, The Briefcase, Heaney has shelved some vintage vinyl. Voices too of Frost and Wallace Stevens off a Cademan double album off different shelves. Dylan at full volume, the Bushmills killed. Do not go gentle. Don't be going yet. Stacks of books and LPs are stored here as part of Heaney's literary hoard, with the recordings as much a part of the poet's personal bibliography of influence as the printed volumes that fill the shelves around his attic workspace. The Cademan double album presumably referred to the Cademan Treasury of Modern Poets from 1957, a two-disc collection that included readings by Frost, Stevens and Dylan Thomas. In his essay, Dylan the Durable, Heaney describes Thomas with great enthusiasm, perhaps with these recordings in mind, as, quote, a poet of immense immediate impact who threw us off our ears, remembering a time when, quote, the records of Dylan Thomas reading his poems, records which are lined up on the shelves of, our under, of undergraduate flats all over the world, were important cultural events. Elsewhere, Derek Mahan gives a similar account of Thomas's momentous arrival. We listened in trance to those recordings first time round, he writes, recalling those famously sonorous Welsh BBC tones. Heaney, warning against any easy condescension towards the role of the media in his literary areas, suggests in his essay that the height of Thomas's fame was also, quote, the moment when print culture and the electronic media were perfecting their alliance in the promotion of culture heroes. While Heaney clearly views poetry as an auditory medium as much as a verbal one, he's not blind to the opportunistic marketing of these records, which in Thomas's heyday were tapping into a contemporary surge in vinyl culture cashing in on the poet's popular appeal, as much as preserving the poetry in its native medium. But when read alongside Dylan the Durable, the bookcase attests to the personal significance of, post of poetry recordings for Heaney in both their immediate cultural impact and the durability of their legacy, offering a reminder that even after the Bushmills killed him, voices like Thomas's live on in these records, undiminished at full volume. Heaney's willingness to make audio recordings of his own confirms his fondness for the form. And while he doesn't go as far as Thomas's singing style in his own recordings, his resonant vocal performances show his reverence for the spokenness of verse, and perhaps on a personal level, uh, the importance of the voice as an inspiration, as well as a vehicle for his own writing. Many hundreds of thousands of visits, uh, the, sorry, the many hundreds of thousands of visits Heaney's public readings have amassed on online platforms like YouTube, most uploaded in the years since his death, are evidence that cultural interest in voice recordings is undimmed and that Heaney's appreciation of their value for, for posterity was well-founded. Heaney muses for the last time on the sui generis quality of the voice in his final volume, Human Chain. Canopy takes its name from the 1991 temporary art installation at Harvard where British artist David Ward concealed 30 separate, speak, 30 separate tape players in the trees of Harvard Yard. Each night between dusk and dark, the speakers played pre-recorded voices, 
whispering everywhere, reciting poems and prose in multiple languages, quote, like the recording of, an antiphon of antiphonal responses in the congregation of leaves, or echoing Dylan Thomas's somnambulant play for voices, a wood that talked in its sleep. Although the poem suggests that the earth was replaying its tapes, the concern here is primarily linguistic. It's not the sounds of nature that the installation reproduces, but the polyphonic play of languages, of various languages and literatures in, contact, in concert. A Babel-like hubbub saturates the canopy with the illusion of sentience, giving Heaney to imagine the trees murmuring quietly amongst themselves and reeds on the riverbank going over and over their secret. While the poem's eerie arboreal ideal is far removed from Dante's punitive wood of suicides, the classical figure of Virgil looms over these reeds on the riverbank, suggesting another worldly river and another kind of going over. Building on the anthropomorphized plant life of the collection's previous poem, A Herbal, with its opening call to the sound recordist to make a loop, wild track of your feet through the wet at the foot of a hill, the foliage and canopy takes on a spectral or double life of its own within the audio playback, like a haunted version of Aeneas's life-preserving golden bow. Oh, sorry, I've missed a slide, haven't I? If a twig had been broken off there, it would have curled itself like a finger around the, uh, it would have curled itself like a finger around the fingers that broke it and then refused to let go as if it were mistletoe taking tightening hold. Well, so I thought as the fairy lights and the boughs came on. There are stark intimations of mortality in these closing lines, as in many of, many of the poems in Heaney's last book. But in the end, Canopy is a hymn to the intimacy of voices, the recorded sounds of words, and their capacity to maintain a connection, however brittle, a connection that survives, survives despite the temporariness of the art installation in the, poet's abide, in the poem's abiding image of people brought together by a river of speech, cocking their ears, gathering, quietening, stepping on the grass, stopping and holding hands. This isn't a radio memory, but like many of the radio representations we encounter in his poetry and prose, it's an example of the power he invests in the auditory imagination. Across his published work, it's possible to trace not only the physical presence of the wireless set, but also the deep influence of radio as an image and an idea. Radio gives Heaney a specific focus for his concerns with interior and exterior forms of listening, sound and authority, memory and autobiography. And perhaps most importantly, it returns into the most basic relationship between patterns of speech, the figure of the voice and the origins of his own poetic practice. Thank you. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for that talk. Um, I also thought that your own kind of audio was quite song-like and poetic in a lot of places. So it was really lovely to listen to the quotes and the readings and everything all together. Um, we've had a few questions coming in. Um, there is a little more time for people to ask them using the Q&A, as Orla said in the chat there. Um, but if I could kick us off, I was wondering if, so um, you touched upon Heaney's interactions with his contemporaries, but didn't have the time to delve too deeply into it. 
And I wondered if you could expand on his collaborations and encounters with his work with the BBC, maybe, for example, with Muldoon. Yeah, so I mean, I mentioned, I think a couple of those programmes are um, programmes that, that Muldoon produced. Um, Muldoon started working at the BBC in 73 um, and stayed there for, I think it's 13 years, uh, all told. Um, and over that period, worked with Heaney on a number of projects. Um, I think one of the interesting things about that whole period really is, is the fact that you have, uh, you know, the Belfast group as they existed before um, Heaney's arrival, sorry, Muldoon's arrival at the BBC, which kind of dissipates as Heaney disappears. Um, he goes down to, to County Wicklow. Um, but after that, it feels like the BBC becomes a, a new kind of nexus. It's a, it's a uh, where they used to meet regularly um, at Heaney's house, in fact, and at the four in hand pub. And that gradually began to tail off when Heaney left. Um, but the BBC becomes this kind of proxy for uh, a continuation of that, of that um, group dynamic, I suppose. Um, obviously not to the same extent, but they're still sharing poems. They're still uh, working together and, and socializing together. And Broadcasting, Broadcasting House in, in Belfast becomes a, a, a connecting point um, for those who would remain in Belfast. Um, but also, I mean, even Heaney down in, in Wicklow, um, you know, a lot of that, he, he does occasionally come back up to Belfast to do recordings and things like that. A few of those cases, actually, um, they, he has been paid to come back up on the train and stay over and, and do uh, and make those, uh, make those radio programmes like Causeway. So, um, yeah, I, I just, it's, it's a fascinating kind of continuation, I suppose, of the, of the, the Belfast group story and the dynamics uh, that continues to play out um, in the collaborations and the sort of uh, clearly the rivalries as well um, that were ongoing through that period. Brilliant, thank you. It's certainly a new perspective on it that I hadn't been aware of and I think for a lot of people it would have been a really interesting slant on it um, and encouraging that people can find proxies to replace in-person <laughs> <laughs> gatherings at people's houses because it's a little bit topical but hopefully not for too much longer um so we've just got a few more minutes left um but if it's okay we have another question um so this one's actually from me very self-centeredly but i loved the reading of glamour sonnet seven and particularly the series of road compounds which spoke to my love of old english kennings and i know that Heaney did a translation of beowulf um he depicts the Irish Sea as a road for eel, seal, whale and ship. And I thought that it really did feel like a chant or a spell. Yeah. Do you think that it's one of the most hypnotic of his poems in terms of sound patterns? I, I would definitely say so. And it does feel as if it's it's deliberately written in that way and, and with, with the radio in mind as a figure. I mean, uh, he, he tells this story regularly about how it, it seems to have been an actual experience that he had talking about midnight and close down. And there is another radio program, I think in the States where he explains how, you know, the, the radio um, during that period when he'd arrived in Wicklow, he'd sit up in, in, his, uh, in his room um, and be, be writing uh, as, you know, dead of night really by this stage and looking out across the ocean and listening to the radio and that the, the radio would close down around midnight and after which just, but just before it does, you have the shipping forecast that comes on. So this is 
it's lifted directly, I think, from, from personal experience, or at least that's the way he, he tells it. Um, but the, the, the connection there with, with the, the sort of lyricism you're talking about, the, the incantatory effect, um, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel as if he's, he's reproducing that. that um, it, the way he reads it there is, 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 is very, it is kind of, it's uh, lulling, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I do feel as if he's attempting to to capture that moment before bed uh, of you know yeah. where things are beginning to close down and the radio is sort of a lullaby almost. Um, even though that I, I do, I think there are kind of some more kind of potentially sinister elements to not really sinister elements of that poem, but an undertow that leads to and connects with other um, suspicions he has about the radio voice. Yeah, yeah, foreboding, if not yes. kind of yeah, sinister. absolutely. absolutely. Thank you. Um, it's really, really interesting. I think we probably have time for one more before we kind of um, round off today's talk. So you spoke about Heaney's dislike of the externally imposed weather forecast and its contrast with the experience of the people actually in the locality, saying that the way he wrote about it could maybe be seen as an act of resistance. Mm. Which do you think is his most rebellious poem? Mm. God. You can say... That's an unfair question. <laughs> I've no idea. <laughs> I've no idea. I mean, I suppose he saw Requiem for the Croppies as a pretty uh, provocative poem. I don't know if it's a poem of resistance. I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? I, resistance is a is a multifaceted word in 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 Heaney's vocabulary. Really, um, you know, it, it chimes with things like redress, and it's all about counterbalancing and and. So, I mean, uh, Requiem for the crop Croppies is a very interesting one. Um, and uh, it's one that he didn't read in, in Ireland um, for years, for years and years. And Rosie Levan has pointed out somewhere, I think, that, that he, he does read it in America. Um, but that, that would have been kind of, it's, it's one of those interesting things, had this been today, you know, he would have been pilloried on social media for kind of, <laughs> For, for, for you know not doing it in, uh, at home but but thinking you can get away with with reading this um this poem abroad um but back then it seems as though the the physical distance and the imaginative distance perhaps uh, of, of being in in the us gave him the license uh and the the sort of the, felt the security to to read that poem there Makes um, a lot of sense. yeah yeah, thank you. Um, I've just seen we've got two more questions come in, so I'm going to try and, and race us through those. Um, so we've got one from Stephen O'Neill. Thank you, Stephen, that says, thanks very much, Alex. I really enjoyed this reading of Heaney and his engagement with RP in the institution of the BBC in London. I wondered what his impression or engagements with Broadcasting House in Belfast before Muldoon um, was there as a sounding board, particularly given the reputation of BBC Ulster in the Northern minority and what we know from Rex Cathcart, et cetera? Sorry, what, I, I didn't quite catch the, the question bit. Me neither. <laughs> um, but I think perhaps it's just uh, the wordings tripping us up a little. Yeah. We'll circle back to that if we have time. We have one from Rosamond Lavan, Lavin. Sorry if I've said that wrong, Rosamond. It says, many thanks, Alex, for a wonderful talk. It was fascinating to get glimpses of the scripts and recordings you're working with. Could you possibly talk a bit about your archival research for this project? Yeah, um, I mean, so 
unfortunately, there's not as much of the archive in this as I, I would like. I mean, I, I've managed to, to wedge some of it in there and some of it, I have to get really deep down nitty gritty stuff because um, I don't have a huge amount on hand. Uh, I went to the BBC Northern Ireland in, um, when was it, early to 2020, uh, just before the pandemic hit and was able to, to kind of take a, a good chunk of material um, relating to all the poets that, that I'm dealing with in this study. Um, but the, uh, uh, there's still so much heaney stuff that I need to uncover and a lot of it at RTE. So um, yeah, unfortunately there's not as much RTE stuff in there uh, as there is BBC. Um, but uh, I am going to Emory in a week and a half uh, to see um, the archives there. And hopefully there should be some good uh, material in there that if at the very least, even if they don't have um, originals will point me in new directions for, um, you know, when things open up again on this side of, of the water. Um, yeah, uh, the archival work is fascinating, though, and I would like I could talk for a long time about the sort of um, the sort of the, the I don't know if it's too pretentious to call it the phenomenology of the of the radio or the broadcast archive as, as something that's kind of distinctive from the paper archive, although it has lots of continuities. Um, and I unfortunately had to cut quite a large amount of that out of this paper just to I can imagine, yeah, into the time frame. But um, uh, yeah, I, I'll follow that up another time. Thank no, that's great. Question. Thank you. I hope we all hope that the trip goes well um, and that your travel goes smoothly. I'm sure there'll be brilliant things um, to discover there. So that might be all the time we have, actually. Um, but thank you so much to Dr. Alonso for your great talk. Um, and thanks to the Long Room Hub for hosting these events and for your technical support, the School of English at Trinity College Dublin, and all of you for attending. Our next seminar is on November the 30th, featuring Dr. Nicholas Daly speaking on Christmas in Ruterania, Hallmark holiday movies, and the long afterlife of a Victorian fantasy. And we'll have more information on that for you soon, along with the link, which will circulate. Um, we hope you all have a good night. And thank you once again, Alex, for a really stimulating talk and a new perspective Thank on you. poems that might have been familiar to some of us, but um, definitely got a kind of a fresh way into them today. So thank you very much and enjoy your evenings, everyone. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.